Question number one. How do we tell homosexuals what they're doing is wrong? If I could, I'm going to rephrase this to capture all the questions under this category. How do we love people enough to tell them the truth? Like, what does it look like to not condemn them? Neither do I condemn you, but not condone their sin. Go and sin no more. Like, how do we relate to people in this way? So, let let me give you one principle then hopefully we'll see how this looks. The principle is simply this. Generally speaking, don't start or end the conversation with sin. Don't start or end the conversation with sin. And let me, let me work this out here. Let me be clear. Our goal, Christians, is not to get everyone to agree that same-sex sex is sin. That is not our goal. Angry rednecks agree that same-sex sex is sin. Muslims agree that same-sex sex is sin. Republican talk show hosts. All right, we are not making rednecks or Muslims or talk show hosts. We're not doing that. That's not what we're about. We're making disciples of Jesus Christ. So our hope is that people will come to know and love our great Savior, that they will give themselves to him fully, that in him they will find joy and hope and peace, and love, and satisfaction that only he can give. Our hope is that all peoples, heterosexual and homosexual, will flourish in this life for God's glory and our good, and that is what we desperately want. That's our goal. So, recognizing that that's our goal, sin has to be part of this conversation. Because sin will ruin that for you. Sin is not good for you. Sin keeps you from that. Sin, all sin, not just homosexuality, but but anger and lust and lies and all those things will keep us from being who God has called us to be and from experiencing what God wants us to experience. All right? So we have to talk about sin, but unless God has called you to be a prophet like Jonah, who just shows up in Nineveh and says, like, you're all going to burn. Sorry about that. Unless God has specifically called you to be a prophet, and he does that from time to time, But unless he's done that, there's another way, and it's don't start or end the conversation with sin. I want to give you an example of this. It's John chapter 4, the woman at the well. I want you to picture this. John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling from from Judea up to Galilee. He's hot, sweaty, sends off the disciples to go get lunch. And it says in the text, verse 4, it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. And Samaria is the enemy territory. This is where all the sinners live. All the people who don't look like us, act like us, believe like us. These are bad people, right? So they, they had to go through there. And scholars for a long time have pointed out that this is really odd. Because he didn't technically have to go through Samaria. What does it mean he had to go? Like there were other ways to get where he was going. But for some reason he had to go. And then in verse 7 we learn why he had to go there. It says he sits down at Jacob's well. And in verse 7... A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Seems the reason Jesus had to go there is that God had an appointment for him to make. And so he sits down at the well, and there she is, this sinful, broken woman, the enemy, right? She is not only shacking up with a man. She is representative of an errant religion that Samaritans didn't worship the same God. They didn't believe in the Old Testament prophets. They're wrong in so many ways. So how is Jesus going to talk to this sinner? And the first thing I want you to see is that he enters her world. He enters her world. He goes on to her turf. He shows up at her well. Okay, so let me explain what he's not doing here. 
He didn't say, why don't you come to my church service? He didn't send her, oh, here's a link to a blog I want you to read. He didn't hand her a book with highlighted pages. He didn't send her a podcast of my sermon last week. He didn't do that. He went where she was. He entered into her world on her terms where he's a fish out of water. Now what's he going to do? He sits down and he asks a question. Are you a sinner? No. He says, would you give me a drink of water? Jesus asks for help. This might not seem like much to you, but I want you to imagine you and your perfect little Christian family. You know, you're sitting there and you're like, shoot, i got to move this piece of furniture. And I need help. So you go across the street, knock on the neighbor's door, and two men, all in rainbow outfits, stand there kissing. Oh, what's going on, neighbor? We're having a party. This would be like you asking them to come over and help you move the piece of furniture. This would be like you going over to them and asking them to help you jumpstart the car. Now, I want you to understand, in that culture at least, and I think in ours too, to ask someone else for help is to honor them, is to put them in a position of respect. And that's what Jesus is doing. He comes into her world and he honors her. He says, you're the, you're the water expert here. Why don't you pull me some water? This is so respectful that it shocks the woman. In verse 9, it says this. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Like, that doesn't happen. Okay. So now that we have this water thing, Jesus is going to hammer her, right? He's like, okay, I got the water. But no, verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I want you to see what he's doing. Jesus here is going to use her immediate need. She needs a cup of water. And what's he going to do? He's going to point to her deepest need. Like you think you came to this well for water. But I'm telling you there's something more. There's something more out there. That you came for a good thing. But there's a better thing. You came thinking this could quench your thirst. But there's something deeper. Now I want you to, I want you to understand this. That when she came to the well, she did not come for a bad thing. Let's contextualize this. Jesus recognizes the good in her. Can I say that? Can I say this? Can we please, church, acknowledge that same-sex relationships are looking for something good? Can we acknowledge that they want love and commitment? and wholeness and beauty and they want to be fully known and fully loved just like all of us can we acknowledge church that the lgb community is looking for something so good and beautiful they are you know what they're looking for they're looking for family and wholeness and how do i know this how how who am i right i'm a little squeaky clean pastor By the way, did you know that I spent five years of my life spending 15 to 20 hours a week at the number one LGBT-friendly hotel in the South? Did you know I worked at the end of the gay bar district? Did you know that I knew every single LGBT leader in the Dallas community by name? Did you know that I've lived in the heart of that and I've seen it up close And and let me just confess, in my observation, the LGBT community does life together better than most evangelical churches, certainly better than ours. Can I say that they are more accepting and more loving and more quick to to not blame but to support one another than, than 
most evangelical churches have ever been. To be fair, do I see all kinds of problems with a community that's based on sexual identity? I do. But this does not negate the fact that they're seeking something good. Something that God has placed in all of us. That the desire for a place, for a family, for a place to belong, for acceptance, to be known and fully known and fully loved, for a place to be yourself, warts and all, and know that people are going to love me and accept me anyways. Can we say that, church? And can we use that to point to the deeper need? And that's what Jesus is going to do next. He has to, and that he has to say, you know what, I'm so glad you're looking for something, because I got, I got what you're really looking for here. He's going to have to speak truth to her, and he says this to her, so here's what I need you to do for me. Go get your husband, and we'll go talk about this. You know what the woman says? Um, I, I don't have a husband. And he's like, that's right, you don't, do you? You're living with a man, and you've had five others. Jesus points to the fact that she's going to the wrong well. That she thinks she's going to find her satisfaction and wholeness and purpose in life, the deep things in life, through men. But they will never satisfy what she's really looking for. Jesus points out that she's been trying to find satisfaction in the wrong places. Jesus confronts her sin, but if he had started here, this conversation would have been way different, wouldn't it? I want you to notice, he took all these steps to enter into her world, to to elevate her, to see the good in her. And then he says, now let's talk about what you're really looking for so that he's not condemning her. He's not putting her down, saying it is good. There is something good here, but we've got to talk about this. You're going the wrong way. He wants her to find what she's really looking for. He wants her to come to an end of going in the wrong well, thinking that that will somehow satisfy her. And then finally, Jesus points out, I'm what you're really looking for. Finally, the conversation goes there. Now, I want you to see this. It doesn't begin or end with sin. May I suggest to you, if your goal is to get everyone to agree with you that same-sex sex is sin, you need a new goal. 